Hey, it's BNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It's February 7, 2021. Tonight, Rick Spizak and some very special guests present a very special performance and homage to everyone's favorite QAnon nut, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, this is a, a little thing he put together, a little skit. With, he's called uh, Jewish Lasers from Space. And uh, I can't wait to listen. So we'll be doing that at the top of the hour. Janine Mollis Justice Report this week examines Republican voter suppression efforts, which are legion. Um, And I've got some thoughts to share on the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. Uh, Additional thoughts on QAnon and thoughts about a potential new ministry of truth. So let's just go ahead and get right into that piece. And then we'll be back to talk a little bit about uh, those $2,000 checks. Hey, so I've got three articles that I want to share with you. And I'm going to put the links to these down in the show notes. But these are three articles that I I read this week that I think are, uh, are, you know, part of the history of 2021, you know, going away from the Trump administration and into the Biden administration. I think that in order to understand the mindset and what is going on right now, I think that these three articles are kind of key. And uh, so uh, we're going to go through them, uh, not in any particular order, because um, that's apparently too much for for me to get my brain around. But but all of this started earlier this week. Uh, on the 2nd, to be exact, when the New York Times published this op-ed by Kevin Ruse. That's kind of an op-ed. It's it's kind of an opinion piece, but it's also kind of uh, an interview reportage thing. But he has this article called How the Biden Administration Can Help Solve Our Reality Crisis. And the side is, these steps, experts say, could prod more people to abandon the scourge of hoaxes and lies. All right. So, you know, like this is coming. We're, we're, the New York Times would like us to uh, to uh, create a, a reality czar at a time when when the uh, U.S. military, the Navy, to be uh, exact, uh, is um, having a UFO task force. OK, so the same people, the same uh, governmental elite that are very concerned about people having both of their feet firmly planted in reality are also right now preparing a report on UFOs that should be uh, delivered by June or July of this year, legislation that passed um, earlier this year. Okay. So, I mean, like right off the bat, I've got like a little bit of problem with the way this is being set up, but you know, I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's just see this guy is talking about and uh, so, you know Kevin Reeves has been on this uh, on this uh, reality binge for quite some time this is his beat. He's, he, he's made a career out of this basically uh, he's, he's a fairly young guy he started making a, a name for himself as a three under 30 so this is his first foray out into this uh, subject matter um, so you know the lead to his story here basically is that um, last month 
millions of Americans watched as President Biden's office in a high-minded inaugural address, which called for a new era of American unity. Let me skip down a little bit. And he said that plenty of other Americans weren't paying attention to Mr. Biden's speech. And I guess we're to believe that the people who didn't pay attention to Biden's speech are problematical. Um, because if they weren't paying attention to Biden's speech, they might have been too busy watching YouTube videos alleged the inauguration was a pre-recorded hoax. <laughs> or they were melting down in QA and chat groups. Um, or maybe they, they were watching OAN on their TVs where an anchor was floating the basic theory that Mr. Biden wasn't actually elected to the people. So he got this. He's setting this up to say that oh, all these people that have all of these beliefs, you know, that they believe in things that are hoaxes or they believe in things that aren't true. And then the very next thing he says is that according to polls, that according to polls, that 70% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon. So, and, and this is according to a YouGov poll that he put a link to in the, in the story. So I just finished reading this other article um, by, um, by uh, Wanevu in the New Republic, where he's talking about uh, percent of people who believe in QAnon phenomenon. And he, his figure, was a factor of 10 less. The figure that he came up with, uh, according to the polls that he looked at, was that there was only 3% of Republicans tied with the QAnon phenomenon. And so how do you reconcile these two numbers? On the one hand, you you have a guy in the New York Times who is uh, uh, advocating the creation of a cabinet-level position called the reality czar which would essentially be a ministry of truth. And he's saying that 30% of Republicans uh, identify with QAnon. And the guy at the New Republic, Nuevo, says, no, it's, it's more like 3%. So I look at the polls, and the difference between the two is that in the YouGov poll, the answer is right, them or are you sympathetic to them? That's and you're of the people who vast majority would just answer that you don't know anything about them really, then whether or not you view them favorably probably has more to do with your personality. You're just pretty much like, I don't know they're okay, I guess. I guess I like them. Or, uh, I don't know anything about them, so it must be awful terrible. You know, like somebody's personality uh, leaning that's going to be like, uh, well, if I do the reject or if I don't understand anything about it, I, I, since I don't know anything specifically bad, I, I can't I outright reject it, and maybe they just have to be somewhat favorable. Like, whatever your default position is, essentially. So I find it very interesting that New York Times writer, Kevin Roos, who is um, very concerned about people getting the right information and not being taken in poses, not being bit feelings about whether or not QAnon is a um, vast conspiracy amongst the Republican Party or whether it's just sort of passing the sort of like, eh, I don't know, whatever, you know. Um, the article that uh, Nehru did in the, in the New Republic 
uh, is really interesting. It's the Democratic Party has a fatal misunderstanding of the QAnon phenomenon. And what he said, I mean part of the least. I'm talking about uh, uh, rank and file voters and people who identify as Democrats. But Democratic Party elites, you know, people who are donors, people who are uh, um, doing messaging and that sort of thing, that they assume people who adhere to QAnon, most of all, are vast in number, which is wrong, <clears throat> and that they are uneducated, uneducated, one would assume largely, uh, you know, less affluent people be adhering to QAnon, and members don't wear that out. As a matter of fact, uh, more people will find more people in the northeast of the United States, uh, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, the northeast. You'll find more people in the northeast for adherence to Q than you will find in the south. And this is according to that very same use of poll that was used in the New York Times by Kevin Roos to make case for a region. The people who say uh, that they view QAnon as very favorable, um, Northeasterners, uh, 7% of Northeasterners are doing QAnon as very favorable, while only 3% of Southerners are viewing QAnon as very favorable. So right there, you're like, uh, there's a huge problem with the way Democratic uh, liberal elites are viewing this phenomenon. Now, on to say that the, uh, the majority of people who are over of QAnon and who fall under, you know, they need action. The actionable people in the United States who would need a reality to interfere with them, you know, consuming YouTube videos or whatever. Uh, the assumption is that they're uneducated and of lower preference. And that Absolutely wrong too. Now, according to the Atlantic, this week they uh, published a piece uh, with media coverage review full 40% of the 193 people charged with breaking into Capitol grounds were business owners and white collar workers. Unlike stereotypical streams, many of the alleged participants in the riot and Capitol riot have a lot to lose. They were they were the CEOs, shop owners, doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, they learned to code, and accountants. I really like what the way that Navo uh, treats this, this information and this material. They think it's really nailed it. They had plenty of dropouts and poor students looked on in horror. And as much as rights critics might prefer an understanding of what's happened to our politics, flatters their intelligence, the challenge we're facing isn't that millions of hapless and benighted yokels have been bamboozled by disinformation. It's millions of otherwise ordinary people from many walks of life, including many went to even into and even excelled in college, have a material or ideological interest in keeping the Democratic Party and voters from power by any means possible. Well, what he's saying here, I mean, just unpack that, is that the Democrat Party hasn't made a whole lot of friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or you could say, you could say, the Democrat 
party has more work to do in the friend making department. And I would say that, that you know, that is a that is a state that is that should be not controversial. And you're not making more friends. Uh, you're not influencing people. If you're saying that you need a cabinet level position to uh, to manage people's sense of reality. I mean, nobody wants that. absolutely nobody saying, "Oh, please come and propaganda brain part that, that will help my brain make its brain thing go." Nobody saying that, except Seven Roots in the, in the New York Times. And in order to make his case for that, he is actually uh, bending statistics to his. He is actually himself misusing uh, information and and misleading his his readership, which I think is is particularly ironic. So let's just appreciate that for a moment. There's a moment of irony. Okay, we're done. Done with the moment of irony. Moving on. Uh, he's hoaxed lies, collective delusions aren't new, but the millions of Americans have embraced them maybe. 30% of Republicans have a favorable view of QAnon, according to a recent YouGov poll, and according to other polls, that he didn't mention. Uh, more than 70% of Republicans believe Mr. Trump legitimately won the election, and 40% of Americans, including plenty of Democrats, believe the basis theory that COVID-19 was manufactured in a Chinese lab. Now, I understand what's going on in that paragraph right there is, is that he's conflating a couple of things. So, first of all, uh, origin of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 is, uh, is elevated to QAnon belief, all right? And also, Republicans who are looking askance at the way the election was, uh, was carried off, they're also being elevated up to, you know, your, your QAnon type people, you know? So, so you, this is an attempt muddy the waters with a logical fallacy called guilt by association. So what he does is he a couple of different uh, ideas and, you know, he, he puts a couple of ideas that are, are of medium and that of less con- controversial content up there for QAnon and intent to level them all up. So that target here is not QAnon. The target here is actually Republicans who are a little bit like I don't know if that election was right or not. So so he wants to take the grounding out from underneath that idea. He also has um, targeted E. Coli infection virus. Uh, that is so using logical fallacies and using like all of these um, ways to bend numbers in the of saying that we need a ministry of truth, that we need a reality czar, and we need to more thoroughly propagandize people. Now, a couple days later, on the 5th, that Ruse article in the New York Times came out on the 2nd. On the 5th, uh, Nancy Pelosi geographer Molly Ball, Vela, essentially, is huge piece in Time magazine called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign that saved the 2020 election. 
Now, this circle describes how uh, uh, CEOs and union leaders came together in 2018 to, uh, to essentially propagandize, to spread propaganda, to in support of democracy, support of, of protecting our elections. Um, and they started in 2019 and really uh, picked up steam in March of 2020, which, interestingly enough, is also around the time that things were, uh, uh, that Obama stepped into the primary, to the Democratic presidential primary, to uh, to make sure that Joe Biden had an open lane in front of him. Okay. So you get this 29 page piece in Time Magazine touting how this uh, history of the shadow campaign saved the 2020 election and holding that up as a good thing that a, a, a secret people, you might say a secret cabal or conspiracy was hatched uh, that involved not just CEOs and, and labor interests, but a whole range of uh, NGOs, nonprofits, the organizations uh, and uh, and other you know, schools of propaganda that uh, that are favored uh, with the the Democratic Party, and they came together to to protect the election. So so they saved the election, America. You can say thank you now, um, and they will in no way continue on. They put together this, this huge you know, cooperative effort to save the election. It went on for more than a year. Molly Ball, Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, biographer, you know, writes this glowing 29-page story about it. And I'm sure that every single one of these uh, uh, organizations that participated in this, and all of the CEOs and all the Chamber of Commerce guys, they're, they're all just, they're just glad it's all over and not a single one are going to carry on with that going forward. I am absolutely positive this is what is going to happen. And I'm completely what's happened. It's interesting in this article is that, that I'm sure this isn't the only money that was spent. They mentioned $20 million was raised to combat disinformation online. And how do you combat disinformation online? Well, you gather around uh, leaders from the news media, internet Entertainment, fine arts, and, and educational uh, uh, professions, you gather them online and you get them to do the work for you, which is exactly uh, that's reading word for word from what the Ministry of Truth did in 1984. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. So here online, you see who have been involved in carrying the propaganda for, uh, for, these, for these interests. And you can see it happening in real time as you paid attention. Uh, let's take the uh, Tara Reid allegation as, a, uh, as an example. Uh, Tara Reid, who had worked for Joe Biden in the early 90s, uh, came forward with a absolutely horrifying story of him attacking a, of a not just sexual harassment, but a, a sexual assault by by Joe Biden when she worked in his when she was a staffer. For his Senate office, and uh, instead of 
you know, believed, um, you know, affording her any of the Me Too kinds of considerations that were extended to others who came forward to um, tell their stories. She was attacked viciously. And, you know, people who were involved in this secret history of the show campaign that saved the 2020 election, uh, people who were involved in this, I'm sure some of them were some of the accounts were like, you know, Tara Reid is a liar, you know, Twitter account on, on Twitter. And, you know, we're just relentlessly harassing her and um, snaring anyone who showed her any kind of kindness. You know, just I'm sorry that that happened to you. I think that you have to relive it. And, you know, instead what they did was they um a character based on the fact that she bounced a check or something. They went a to her landlords in places where she had lived over the years to see if, you know, she had left the apartment messy. And it had gotten down into the details of her life to an extent that was just horrifying. So I was a little worn out on this whole story by the time I saw the Time magazine piece. I read the piece times and I was just like, oh, Jesus, you know, this is not a road we need to be going down. And I really don't want to spend too much of my time, uh, you know, immersed in this material because it's toxic. It just is really toxic. But it's not something that you can ignore because uh, other people are talking about it. And I think that I think that the whole point of the Time Magazine article is to get it there to create more growth for the male. Uh, I think that Time Magazine and these big media uh, interests, they they have a, a vested interest in stir, wouldn't publish a piece like this if they weren't trying to stir the pot. Uh, there's a there's a, a paragraph in here where it says um, the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream, a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideology, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election. They were fortifying it. So for all of the Republicans in another article, you know, the fans who thought that there was something hate going on with the election, oh my God, they were right. <laughs> Here comes Time Magazine to tell them how right they are. But not only are they right, everybody who saw what was going on in 2016 with the Bernie Sanders uh, uh, primary campaign and then the 2021, you know, people stepped in all over the place to run interference to make sure that Bernie Sanders could win. I mean, it was just absolutely ridiculous uh, both both times around. And so here comes this article that's essentially speaking the ball in the end zone, uh, saying, oh, yeah, what we did, we completely ran interference, we completely uh, meddled in the election, and uh, we won, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so they're, they're dancing in the end zone. I think that some people think that the people who published this and the people who participated in this don't see what's wrong with that, right? I think that there's a sense that, oh, my 
God, they're so stupid. They don't see how they've, you know, really shown their asses here. But I don't believe that. I think there's a reason that stories like this get published. I think it serves the interests. I think it serves the media interests and it serves the elite interests. Well-funded, powerful people don't think uh, you can be trusted to vote in your interest. So we did a thing. You're welcome, democracy. That's right. That's a tweet by um, Beth Lynch. She also says, this was honestly the dumbest thing they could have done. Better to continue to gaslight us about what we saw happening than to admit that they have the power to intervene and manipulate our elections anytime they damn well please for their benefit. So that's essentially, this is 29 pages of, you know, this is what we do. We can totally intervene anytime we want to for our benefit, not for your benefit. And uh, there's nothing you can do about it. No, 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 no. Now, all of these articles drop at the same time that everyone that I know is uh, very interested in this whole $2,000 check business. We talked about this a bit uh, last week, but, um, you know, It was uh, very overt that Joe Biden and John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock all campaigned and had Kamala Harris campaigning and had uh, Stacey Abrams campaigning on $2,000 checks going out the door as soon as those two guys were elected. They had whole teams of people doing uh, texting, you know, cam- cam- doing campaign texts saying, you got to get out the vote so that you get your $2,000 check. And people are knocking on doors saying, go get out the vote so that you get your $2,000 check. So it's like all these volunteers are doing it and, P- and the voters believed it. And during a, ca- a, a pandemic, they leave their house to go cast their vote because they think they're going to get a $2,000 check. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, it's just $1,400, honey. See, you don't know how to do math. See, you already got $600. And it was amazing. It was amazing how all of a sudden online, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of of these these weird Twitter accounts. It was like Joe654789, you know, they were all saying, oh, you can't do math. It's 1400 plus 600, da, 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 da. Let me tell you, no human being, no real human being saw what was going on during the, uh, the Georgia runoff and believed that. Because um, this, is what, this is what we actually heard. Send John and the Reverend to Washington. Those $2,000 checks will go out the door. We will be able to pass $2,000 stimulus checks for the people next week. We'll deliver the $2,000 stimulus checks, and that begins with the $2,000 stimulus. When you send me and Reverend Warnock to the Senate, we will pass those $2,000 stimulus checks. You send me and Reverend Warnock to the Senate, we will pass those $2,000 stimulus checks. They will make decisions about whether we give people a $2,000 check. We need to pass $2,000 stimulus checks for the people. We're getting people the $2,000 in relief, direct payment. Congress should pass $2,000 checks. President-elect Biden and Democrats are all... So I'm not going to make you listen to that whole thing, but but we all heard it. And so what was going on after this was a whole bunch of gaslighting by a lot, a lot of social media uh, accounts are not real, y'all. <laughs> they're They're either 
manufactured by this uh, shadowy campaign that saved the 2020 election, or they're staffers, or people who are, you know, uh, invested in with the Democratic Party elite, and they're just gaslighting. Now, I don't know who thinks that that's any kind of good uh, strategy going forward. Um, it's not like people are going to say, oh, my God, you're right. I totally heard that wrong the 3,000 times I heard it. Yeah, nobody, nobody does that at all. As a matter of fact, what people actually are going to do is uh, think twice before volunteering to be that person who is lying to people on doors or volunteering to be that person who is lying to voters through text messaging. You know, I don't want to be that person. And I have a feeling that, you know, people who are listening to this program don't want to be that person. And I really don't want to be the person who's being lied to, you know, whether you're being lied to as a volunteer on a campaign or you're being lied to as a voter um, by a campaign volunteer. So the point here is, there's a few takeaways, but the, the main takeaway that I want to focus on right now is that all of this infrastructure that was put together with this uh, uh, secret shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election, all of this infrastructure, the millions and millions of dollars that have been spent on, uh, on propaganda through social media, and also a, another facet of this that's talked about in the article is how they got the big tech companies to do their bidding for them. You know, so they're they're banning people and they're deplatforming people this week. Uh, YouTube uh, demonetized Graham Elwood and uh, Jamal Thomas, and uh, of course, Convo Couch has has been demonetized. What, what they're doing is is they're going after left voices. They're going after left voices left and right, and the thing about that is, is you essentially don't have a voice in this economy if you're not using a platform. Uh, you've got to use a social media platform, either Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, right? You're, you're on a platform. Even if you're a, uh, a professional writer and you have a sub stack, okay, that's a platform or a Patreon, that's another kind of platform. Uh, Naked Capitalism, E. Smith this week did a really good piece on if you depend on a platform as your business model, you do not have a small business. If, that, if, if you absolutely have to be platformed on YouTube or you absolutely have to be platformed through Patreon or through Substack, you do not have a business because it can be taken away from you any minute, especially if you're on the left, especially all right, we're going to come right back and we're going to talk a little bit more about those uh, $2,000, no $1,400, no $1,000, no $600 checks. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. And, uh, I caught a little bit of the Super Bowl. It's really, really kind of weird that it's happening in uh, in in Florida, in Tampa, and uh, you know, I, I hope it doesn't turn into a super spreader event. Uh, and uh, you know, hope the best for for all of them. But um, 
Jesus. Anyway, back to this Czech situation. So much good writing has uh, been done on this. Current Affairs has been covering it. Uh, there's um, some polling that was done last month. Data for Progress released the results of a poll showing that two-thirds of American voters believed that the government ought to give out universal universal relief payments of $2,000 per month for the duration of the coronavirus pandemic. And that would put us, if they were doing something like that, that would put us on par with, you know, just about every other uh, uh, developed country that is uh, doing salary replacement, you know, making economic measures so that, People don't have to go out in public. They can stay home. They can socially distance, and we can get through this pandemic uh, with as little death and destruction as possible. But the U.S. government is not doing that. And uh, the Democratic Party in particular are playing games with this whole $2,000 check business, and it's incredibly bad politics. Now what's happening is uh, the Daily Poster, Andrew Perez, who is awesome, you should go and subscribe. They did a piece. uh, This check would mean a lot. And I saw this as uh, David Sirota and Andrew Perez and the rest of the guys at the Daily Poster were asking people to, for their personal stories. Uh, So the means testing goes like this. They want to start cutting off uh, any kind of relief to people who make over $50,000 a year. $50,000 a year. If you make over $50,000 a year, you won't get a survival check as promised. Um, And so they, they wanted to speak to some people and uh, this article starts out treading water said Jay 42. Jay had been working a full-time job in the live event industry in Texas since 2016 While he was largely living paycheck to paycheck, as we all do, um, due to student loan debt and rent, he was comfortable and he loved his work. That was before COVID-19 hit and caused the cancellation of live events across the country. Now, remember, live events can be music events. They can be uh, uh, convention services, which uh, Orlando here in Florida, we are largely dependent on the conventions that, that come here. Uh, and, uh, while Florida has opened up the tourist industry, a lot of this other, uh, kind of live event stuff, like the Super Bowl, should fall under that category. A lot of the, uh, live event stuff has closed down. So this guy, Jay, says, my income has been cut in, uh, in half by, by more than in half. And now he can only pay his rent. Uh, he said, that's it. Rent is ridiculously expensive in Austin, Texas. I make bulk meals to stretch my dollar that way. I've canceled most subscriptions to anything, and I don't have cable. I've foregone purchases to replace old stuff like clothes and dishes and other consumables. And Jay is worried that because he earned $61,000 in 2019, he won't get a full $1,400 which should be a $2,000 survival check in the mail. If Democrats in Washington follow through on their proposal to limit eligibility for a new round of COVID economic impact payments. 
Uh, recent days, Democrats been discussing limiting checks to individuals earning less than $50,000 and couples earning less than $100,000. President Joe Biden's original proposal would send full checks to individuals earning up to $75,000 and married couples earning up to $150,000. The same income limits Congress had used previously in their rounds of uh, uh, survival checks. Now, what was wrong with that? You know, what, what, it, checks were already means tested. Why, why are they, you know, going even further after making all of these wild uh, um, uh, promises, you know, of $2,000 out the door immediately, and now suddenly it's $1,400, and oh, by the way, you don't know math, um, and, uh, and, you know, just all of this gaslighting and stuff. And so I wanted to bring on someone to kind of talk about this a little bit. Um, unknown caller, do we have you on the line? Yeah, hi, how are you? Hi, I am so glad you could join us. Um, I wanted to get another voice, you know, like a man on the street voice of um, what is going on, what is going on in your mind as someone who is, uh, you know, kind of interested in the political game, but not kind of, but not a professional in it, you know, like I, my business actually depends on people doing campaigns and, and doing campaign work. So I watch politics for, for that kind of reason, but you're just a normal guy. What are, what, what is your sense? What are you getting off of this whole means testing business? Well, I, you know, I, I thought you were spot on with your comments. I was listening to the show. I always listen to your show. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and I, I think anybody who's paying any kind of attention is it's just kind of amazed at the, the Democrats even trying to backslide this way. I mean, they they just got the Senate for the first time. And like you said, I'm not a political person, so I don't know how long, but they've been struggling forever for the Senate. They turned Georgia blue in the first time in in my lifetime, and I'm, I'm about your age. And they did it all, as you demonstrated, with this, hey, you know, it, it's literally the least that they could do is, uh, you know, another round of relief checks. Uh, they helped people last time. Things haven't gotten any better. And to immediately turn around and say, aha, that, that teeny tiny check you got a while ago cuts into the check that we were talking about now, and we're already, as you also pointed out, you know, a, a millionth in the list of industrialized nations in terms of getting people any help in the first place. And I just got to wonder why. Why? What are the Democrats getting out of this gaslighting? And, and like you said, it's, it, it, don't get me started on the misinformation sort of wars. I mean, we can all see what's happening. In, in order to combat the crazy things the right-wingers have done, they're going to stop any, like, any kind of progressive talk. They're going to shut down progressives who are saying things like, stop lying to us and stop giving all our, all our money to the military on the basis that the right-wingers said that, you know, whatever, Democrats were drinking babies' brain blood or whatever. It, this is done all the time, and I, I've witnessed that my whole life. Right-wingers do crazy stuff. They blow up buildings. They shoot up synagogues. And then we get laws and rules and restrictions, which somehow are brought down on peaceful BLM protesters or whatever. So that's, that's a different topic. But I can't for the life of me figure out why the Democrats think it's a good idea or they can get away with 
this, you know, rescinding their offer and saying, oh, you misinterpreted us and we're going to get away with it because we have an army of social media trolls. And I've seen those people too. I look on Twitter and I've seen that, you know, John 0004321 joined January 2021 um, and, and, with these contemptuous responses to people who are hurting. And, and the whole idea of means testing is, is just ludicrous. We shovel money at banks, at, at farmers not to grow crops, at fossil fuel companies who have even said they don't need them. This is a drop in the bucket, and less than many less rich countries have done for people, and, and we know that it works. We know that people who are struggling, when you send them a bit of money, they spend it, and, and I'm not an economist either, but I've heard of something called the velocity of money, where if you give someone that has urgent needs money, they spend it immediately, and it travels through all the different expenses and costs they have to pay. It goes to the landlord. It goes to the grocery store. It goes to the farmer, the trucker, the gas station. Um, you know, the, the idea that someone making $50,000 in America, you know, and, and as you pointed out, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna gauge by – people's income before all this even happened. But even then, somebody who's making $50,000 is not a wealthy person in America. You could be struggling. You know, it, we ha- we're in this time machine where, you know, $7 an hour was an okay amount of money for a, a minimum wage job 30 years ago. You know, I, I, again, I'm about your age, and $50,000 was a, a pretty good income in 1995 when I graduated from grad school. It's not now. Uh, you know, you can't buy a house for $100,000 anymore. So I don't know what the Democrats are thinking. This is absolutely going to bite them on the butt. Uh, they've made the campaign ads for the midterms. And I've got to wonder, you know, I see the really cynical people saying they want to lose at the midterm so they can do what they want and compromise with Republicans and, you know, and have someone to blame. I don't know about all that. But I don't know what they're thinking. Uh, I will say that Joe Biden, you know, I, I want to like him. He's he's not Trump. You know, he's not a completely repugnant animal like that guy, but he's an old school politician, old school. I mean, he entered the Senate in like 1972 or something, and I think he thinks you can just lie to people and you can just turn around and not do what you said you were going to do, and no one will ever really understand it. And we don't live in that world anymore, which, you know, it, one good thing about all this communication is everyone knows immediately when you've told a lie. And this is just the biggest hammer uh, to hit them with in the midterms and beyond. Why would you ever believe the Democrats when they when on this simple thing and they're chiseling people out of, what, 600 bucks? What mm-hmm. is that? I mean, that is a... That is a, a, a dirty used car dealer. That is a, you know, some kind of scam from, you know, uh, from a bad business person. They're chiseling people out of 600 bucks for what? What do we get? Well, what did they get out of that? It, and we were, we were talking earlier about, uh, you and I were talking earlier about uh, how Joe Biden has a history with this means testing approach to lawmaking. And uh, you know a bit about his bankruptcy law, the the BAP CPA. Uh, You know a lot more about it than I do. And 
I was surprised to learn that there was means testing. It was a terrible bill, a terrible law to begin with, and it's being talked about now because they they want to rewrite it so that you can declare bankruptcy and discharge student loans. This is what uh, Chuck Schumer has been going. He he he's been appearing with Elizabeth Warren to talk about this, and this right. is an idea that's right. Chapter ten, I think they're going to call it. Okay, so you know something about this. So, so this is something that is going on in the Senate. I don't know if it'll actually fly, but tell us a little bit about this this history of means testing as it uh, relates to bankruptcy. Yeah, so I know a little bit about bankruptcy and bankruptcy law. I've been around that in my professional life. And in 2005, uh, the uh, bankruptcy, this thing called the BAT CPA, was passed, and that was the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act. Uh, Biden was the primary sponsor, along with Chuck Grassley and Florida's former Attorney General uh, McCollum. I forget what his first name might have been, Bill. Uh, but what that did was we, there's two main chapters for consumer bankruptcy. Chapter 7, which is called liquidation, where you go in and you essentially you give up uh, all your assets that aren't exempt in some way, like Homestead in Florida. You, you agree to give those up to be sold and pay your creditors. And when you're done with that, and a short bankruptcy can be, you know, 60 days or less, when you're done with that, all your what they call unsecured debt is gone. Everything that doesn't have a lien attached to it, like your credit card, signature loans, basically things other than your house and your car. All that debt goes away. That's liquidation bankruptcy chapter seven. It's the most relief you can get as an individual. There's another chapter called chapter 13, where you make payments over time for up to five years. And primarily, that used to be just good for people who had mortgage debt because you could spread out your mortgage payments and catch up over five years. What, what Biden did with this bill that he passed, and there was universal understanding in the bankruptcy world when I was part of it, that this was really just to chisel a few more bucks for the credit card companies and the car lenders. What they did was they set a threshold, and they said, well, you can't file Chapter 7 anymore and get rid of all that credit card debt if – your financial situation indicates you could pay at least 20%, that's, uh, uh, you know, a one-fifth of your unsecured debt, like your credit cards and stuff, back over five years. In other words, if you can pay back your Visa card a fifth of what you owe it over five years, you have to. You can't just get rid of it. They put other hurdles in there. They made mandatory credit counseling so that anybody who files bankruptcy has to get credit counseling. On the surface, that might sound wise, uh, but that's another uh, thing that the, the debtor has to pay for. Um, it's another hoop to jump through. And if you think about it, it's kind of uh, insulting. I mean, we know that more than half of the bankruptcies in America, and I can verify this through personal experience, are filed by people over medical debt. You know, another shame of this country is that people go broke over medical bills. So you take someone who went broke because they got cancer and you tell them, well, obviously you don't understand how money works. So first you have to take this class. And oh, by the way, if you can pay part of your, the worst debt in the world, credit card debt, where, you know, they, they make mountains of cash off late fees and interest charges and vendor fees. They make it coming and going. Credit cards make so much money that they'll actually give you money back for using them because they make money off vendors. That debt if you can pay any of it back, you have to take your disposable income struggling person and stay in bankruptcy for five years rather than getting it over within a couple of months. It was insulting. I think it's generally understood uh, in the bankruptcy world as having been a mistake. 
and having done nothing but damage debtors for the benefit of creditors, for banks, for lenders, for credit cards and car loans. Um, the, the new proposal, I, I'm very interested to see. One of the things that Elizabeth Warren et al. are proposing to change is, like you said, to allow student debt to be dischargeable. And, and that didn't come from the Biden uh, reform. That had been in place for a while. Uh, but it's very, very difficult. Uh, you can theoretically discharge student loan debt if you are permanently disabled to the point where you can't earn any money anymore ever. Uh, it's basically impossible to prove. They're proposing to change that uh, and make some other changes to make it a, a, a debtor-centric reform. But I really question how that's going to fly in a democratically controlled federal government at, at the top of which is the man who pushed all these pro-creditor uh, uh, reforms in the first place. This would be a slap in the face to Biden's signature achievement, I would say, as a senator, which was to give this big gift to all these banks that supported him throughout his career. You know, he was known as the senator from MBNA because that, that bank and other banks in the Delaware region were big backers of his and I presume still are. So to, to reverse all that essentially would be a good thing. But I'd be kind of shocked if there was, you know, real wholehearted support from Joe Biden and his administration when that basically would be saying – Joe Biden's bankruptcy bill screwed things up and needs to be undone. So I, I'm really curious to see. It would be a good thing if it happened. I have to give Elizabeth Warren, who I have mixed feelings about as a politician, I have to give her credit for at least appearing to spearhead this effort. But I wonder if it's going to be given full-throated support by an administration headed by the guy who cut the legs out from under American uh, bankruptcy debtors in 2005. I have to agree. And there's been a lot of talk this week about Chuck Schumer. And uh, has Chuck Schumer like suddenly seen the light about the left because he's come out in favor or at least you know, appearing with Elizabeth Warren on this bankruptcy issue on canceling student debt? He's been uh, uh, working on a uh, he's been working on a, a, a marijuana decriminalization thing. So he's doing like he's making all of these these motions towards the left. And the New York Times did an article I have right here. Uh, the pressure is on. Will Schumer <clears throat> satisfy the left? Uh, so this is New York Times a few days ago. As he prepares for an impeachment trial this week, Senator Chuck Schumer is at the height of his political power in Washington. At home in New York, he is taking steps to head off a primary challenge from the left. So the conventional uh -huh. thinking here is that uh, 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 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could uh -huh. challenge him from the left. And so all of a sudden he's you know, making these uh, very public gestures about, you know, I want to, uh, he wants to make a very big show about supporting decriminalization of marijuana, uh, discharging student debt, and so on and so forth. He's even tweeting his own tweets on this. Now, I don't believe for a second. Uh, I've watched Chuck Schumer uh, do, do, do his magic in the Senate. I've watched it for a very long time. And what I've observed is he's a very astute politician. He knows 
uh, how to signal. He knows how to message. And then he also knows how to get what he wants, you know, by, by uh, twisting arms and making things happen behind the scenes. So I don't believe for a minute that he's uh, uh, doing the work for, you know, discharging the debt or any of this stuff right, right now. And then the other thing is, is it, it concerns me as the entire country is watching this, this whole uh, uh, $2,000, $1,400 survival check situation. Now we're going into another like Groundhog Day. We're going into another impeachment process that is going to suck all the oxygen out of the room. And so, you know, right. here we are again, uh, where, you know, the political theater and performative politics is going to, um, you know, undercut what the business is that needs to be done for people to actually make ends meet. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it feels to me like, and, and that's not to say that, you know, the, the right wingers that went and, you know, pooped in the halls of the Capitol and, and killed people, uh, you know, that doesn't need to be stopped. It does. But I, I can't help feeling like, you know, the most powerful forces in American politics, you know, the moneyed interests, the banks, uh, defense industry, insurance industry, uh, and, the, and the Democrats who always seem to want to talk left and govern right. Uh, I think what they'd like to do is simplify everyone's apparent choices to, you know, crazy people who believe in Jewish space lasers or, you know, nice, friendly, calm corporatists who are going to chisel you out of 600 bucks on your survival check uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, otherwise uh, damage consumers and working people on behalf of the same people, you know, they, they sure didn't do any means testing for the, you know, the new three quarters of a trillion dollars sent to the defense budget. I mean, that just got done lickety split with no discussion. That's amazing. Uh, you know, yeah. almost a trillion dollars, just boom, out the door. We're supposedly in peacetime. What happened to the peace dividend? You know, there's no debate. There's no discussion. There's no, do we really need this money? But they want to know if that guy Jay in Austin is making too much money. You know, he's, he's eating ramen and trying to meet his rent. And they're they're worried that there's a moral hazard there that if he gets fourteen hundred bucks, I guess that that's just going to be too much of a windfall. And I guess what discourage him from working? It's it's asinine and it's really insulting to people that you know that uh, Congress people making one hundred and sixty to two hundred twenty thousand something dollars a year, uh, and most of them are independently rich anyway, at least in the Senate, are musing that you know, barely a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks is some kind of moral hazard in the middle of an unprecedented worldwide pandemic. We might be sending the wrong message to give people some of their own tax money back to stay alive. It's, it's absurd. And, and you talk making, about theater, all of that is just, it's in nuts. In terms of theater, it's making Trump look more, uh, competent in terms of getting relief to people. Uh, one of the things that that uh, I think is very to people, right? Uh huh. We got two thousand dollars from that idiot, and, and the, you know the smart people, the adults in the room that you know aren't slobbering lunatics. They're saying, "Oh no, no, we're going to chisel you over four hundred bucks." You know, so these are your choices, people. You have the the idiot, crazy people with the, you know, with the horned helmets. Or you have these these uh, these petty 
corporately owned chiselers who are going to whine and cry about giving a guy that making struggling on fifty thousand dollars a year of you know fourteen hundred bucks. That's your choice. Well, it's and, and 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 I feel like I didn't put enough of a. Uh, of a, a, a fine point on this, but they're doing the means testing on 2019 income. So we're all right. hurting because right. we lost work in 2020. So what I made right. in 2019 ha- bears no uh, relevance to, you know, how much I'm suffering now in 2020 and 2021. I have read that if you're able to get your tax information together, like lickety split, and get it filed, that it would be based on your 2020. And I, not everyone can file their taxes right away. Not everybody can do that. But I mean, uh, you know, another thing that probably bears mentioning is, you know, those checks are going out the door the second we get elected. And now they're talking about, oh, maybe, maybe in the middle of the summer, maybe July, you know, and time is money too. If you want to help people, you need to mm-hmm. help them right now, but it's going to be down the road. So, Maybe I would I would tell your listeners if you you know if you're in that situation or you know someone and your income went way down in 2020 file your taxes as fast as you can uh, because that's the information that they'll rely on and if it, it would make you qualified whereas in 2019 you weren't you should do that. Well, that is uh, th- that is very good uh, observation there. Uh, mystery caller, thank you so much once again for calling in and uh, giving us the man on the street and also the uh, um, uh, insight into bankruptcy. I so much appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's a great show. Keep up the good work, Brooke. Ah, thank you. All right, guys, we're going to be right back with a very special uh, presentation. Rick Spizak wrote a uh, a skit, I guess, a, some some radio comedy drama uh, on the uh, Jewish lasers from space. So we will be right back with that. gentlemen, we would like to introduce a small, humorous skit entitled Secret Jewish Lasers from Outer Space. A play written and produced by Rick Spizak. And our players are Commander Davin, Commander of the Jewish Laser from Space, Scott Maynard, uh, Captain Stephen Miller, Chief War Laserist, Rick Newhoff. Admiral Magdalena Esther Wowsey is Rose Royce. Sven from the UN. And Black Helicopter Pilot is Ray Del Greco. Gregor Lastovich Smith is Scott Maynard. Wang Qi, Chinese Astrophysicist and Professor of Black Holes, Rick Newhoff. Congresswoman Madge Jordy-Greed is Linda Spisak, and I, your author, am narrator. Hope you enjoy the play. We find ourselves high above the earth, 
in the orbiting space station. Below lies the many potential targets of the top secret Jewish, Jewish space, space laser. laser. Only now, revealed as the cause of the massive California forest fires, the charcoaling of Colorado, and the wasting of the force of Wyoming well, you did it, boys. You did it. And you did it good. You used your noodle. Yes, Commander. We achieved the thorough destruction we had hoped for. Your mothers would be so proud of you, too. You barbecued Santa Barbara and Burbank. You scorched Sacramento and South Toledo. And fried Frisco and Fresno. Berkeley was already toasted. <laughs> yes, Madam Admiral, and no one was the wiser. We only fired the laser when the Kardashians, our Duck Dynasty, was on the tube. And no one knew it was Now we've proven the beam's premier potent power. Now we will strike. Set your charges for Ohio, Texas, and Georgia. There won't be a redneck left in that neck of when will we get the command, Admiral? We strike Saturday night at It'll be the perfect time for Operation Hoedown. Let's synchronize our cell phones. Admiral, we will set our target system and charge our lasers. Captain Miller, did you use a laser charge for last? Set your initial targeting vectors, gentlemen. You will get the final setting Saturday. Meanwhile, Stand by. Stand ready. We're going to have a wild time. A few Saturday afternoons. The command center of the secret Jewish lasers had been given their targeting information and had little to break up the boredom but the reruns of the apprentice shows that Captain Miller had DVR'd. Now our scene changes and we find ourselves in the Deep Space Observatory with Dr. Wong Ki and his indefatigable assistant, Gregor Lastovich Smith. Rook there. Rook there? Ah, uh, wait, are we playing chess or not, Farmer? I thought you wanted to show me something in the telescope. <laughs> oh, yeah. This strangest thing. I saw these hot flashes in what's usually empty space. Where? Look, right there. You see that? That, that bright beam light coming right over there. Should I track it? I'm getting some photos now. You aimed a telescope at it? Look at that! There again, you see those hot flashes? It's like a, a, a discotheque. Excuse me. I'm from the UN, and I'm here to help. At just the most opportune moment, a black UN helicopter had landed just outside the observatory. Excuse me, gentlemen. I'm Sven from the UN, and I'm here to help. Ah, this is your chance, Gregor. Go talk to the congresswoman. You always talk about her. I'll stay here. Uh, I just like to watch. <laughs> the phone lines are down. The Black Hawk from the UN is our only help. 
to let the world know what we discovered. Jewels with secret giant razors from out of space. Secret Jewish razors from out of space. Sven, with his UN black helicopter, had landed on the grounds of the Planetary Observatory and immediately deduced Gregor's need to get to Washington, D.C. to see his congresswoman. Come on, get in my black helicopter from the U.N., and I'll have you at Congresswoman Madge Doherty Greed faster than you could say... Oh, this is finally your chance. You're going to meet your congresswoman? I think she surely have time to meet with you, since she does not have time to waste any of those other tedious committee meetings all gone. I missed her at the shooting range. I couldn't tell which one she was by the clan meeting, but I bet she was the one with the designer robes trimmed in rhinestones. And... When I saw her at the live event, she was so busy banging away with that 50 cal, she never heard me screaming. So this is my chance. Let's go. The black helicopter is ready to go. Climb in. Off they flew from the Planetary Observatory to the mid-Washington office of Congressman Madge Jordy Greed. And in just a few minutes, they were dashing evading metal detectors and ducking security guards. Gregor had made sure he had a few spare clips. Oh, what's to see me? Oh, he's a farmer. Dang. Well, well what's he packing? Oh, okay, let him in. What you gonna tell me about Jews in space? <laughs> what, they got lasers? Hot damn, you got a ride? Let's go. Now, back at the secret Jewish laser satellite, we join the Admiral with her secret Jewish space laser warriors. Admiral, I must report. A discrepancy. A small discrepancy. What do you mean? Discrepancy? I was just trying out the laser, Admiral. Sort of sort of a final dry run, just taking off a couple of hot shots on some targets I came across. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't with him. I was in the kitchen making soup, having some sniffles and funny my sense of taste and smell as well disappeared, Admiral. Wait a minute there, Miller. What exactly, what do you mean you picked out a couple of targets? I was testing our precision digital sighting, so I picked out a random family barbecue. <laughs> that was a good one. And, and a, a couple wedding parties, and, and finally, a large family out picnicking. <laughs> Mr. Miller, we're not flying drones over Afghanistan. This is a secret mission. Admiral Esther Wowsey was more annoyed that he might have exposed them to observation. But after all, you can't test a secret Jewish space laser without hard-boiling a couple of omelets now, can you? I don't think anyone's the wiser, Admiral. We're still quite secure. Not a soul knows we're here. 
If our cover is blown, you're in deep force, mister. Just outside the space station, the black UN helicopter was rushing to refract their secret Jewish laser plans. Scene four. Once Gregor Smith and the congresswoman climbed into the UN's black helicopter with Sven, Sven announced, Gregor, congresswoman, I've got very good news. We can fly this specially equipped UN black helicopter right out into space to stop those laser scoundrels and thwart their dastardly plan. You mean we can fly the helicopter out into space and then board the sacred Jewish Jewish space space laser laser station? Well, if there are Jewish lasers in space, of course we can fly a black helicopter from the UN up into space and just knock on their door. Who's there? Who could be coming at this hour? It is I. Then from the UN, yeah? Meet my black helicopter parked out back. By the way, it's just smaller on the inside. Stop what you're doing. Stop in the name of Q. Now tell me right now. Now tell me right now, are you one of them lizard people? If you are, then you best pull off that dang people mask before I tell you. It's okay, Congresswoman. Q knows all. He knows what to do. Damn right. We know what you're up to, dang Jews in space. What kind of laser mischief are you doing? We will take you to Q. He'll figure this out. I'm not sure my black helicopter from the UN can carry all these people. Sweet, um, don't you worry that pretty Aryan head of yarn. You shall provide. You're coming with us, you all know. Now duck your head as you come through the airlock there. These all prisoners And now, Sven, their friend with the black helicopter from the UN, took them and their nasty Jewish laser warriors to Q's secret headquarters hidden ten stories beneath the secret basin of the pizza parlor nestled in downtown Washington, D.C. Watch out! Don't Don't step step on that lizard lizard over there. Okay, and we're back. That was something else, guys. Thanks a lot for that. Wow, that was was quite something. Uh, While... That was uh, uh, playing. I, I uh, walked out into the living room and checked the uh, Super Bowl still going on, and um, yeah, had a had a chat with with my husband about uh, what's going on with COVID and some of the stuff that we we're talking about on the show, and you know, we were talking about the the availability of vaccine and how. Uh, it's not it's not seen as mandatory for schools to open for teachers to have vaccine. Uh, and for some reason, uh, people are being forced back into school without uh, you know any kind of proper um, protection. 
And, you know, this has been an ongoing problem from the very beginning of the whole pandemic problem. And, you know, I'm thinking about that in terms of what we've been talking about throughout the entire evening with, uh, with the um, uh, secret history of the plot to save the election and the new realities are and, uh, you know, all of these uh, uh, just ham-fisted attempts to create a, a ministry of truth and to control uh, the narrative. And, you know, it occurs to me that we might not need so much controlling of narrative. We might not need a ministry of truth and so on and so forth if things were happening on the ground that made more sense to people. So if you have a populace, you know, like everybody who's got kids and everybody's got kids who go to school and, you know, all of the, the, the whole social ecology of, of teachers and the educational system, and they're all looking around and they're saying, how come we're not being uh, uh, prioritized for vaccine? Because schools, as we know, are, that is how the flu itself gets circulated every year. It always starts up when, when back to school happens because schools are little germ factories, you know, especially uh, elementary schools and, and, you know, schools are overcrowded. You know, you've got too many people in a class and not enough time to, in between classes to get, clean things up and to get, set them back up for the, for the next class. And so people's experience, people's lived experience is that what is being said on, on, on the news and, and what we're being asked to believe doesn't correspond to people's lived experience. So we're being told on the one hand that we're supposed to, uh, you know, uh, prioritize social distancing and prioritize uh, uh, safe measures with regard to personal protection, wearing masks and distancing. And, 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 and now we have this, this vaccine that is theoretically available, but the people who need it most aren't able to get it right now and there and you know we're we're starting to hear that that maybe maybe we'll be able to get it by by the summer you know maybe maybe by summer uh, we can put teachers in the priority queue for the for the vaccine and i think all of this contributes to a a uh, a basic environment of distrust and I don't think that we can address this uh, environment of distrust or this crisis of reason, what I would have called it in the past, a crisis of reason. I don't think that we can address that with a ministry of truth. I don't think that we can address that with a uh, realities are. Both of those suggestions are um, would exacerbate the problem. Because if the problem is that that people uh, people are not adopting the uh, the mores and the uh, behaviors of the ruling class, then you know creating a a commission 
to enforce the mores and the beliefs of the ruling class on everyone else, that's just going to make things worse. Because what that does is it gives you a whole list of all of the stuff that benefits the ruling class that everyone can just point to and go, uh, not that. That's not we, – we, we a priori have a reason not to believe that stuff. So I guess my point here is that all of these attempts that are being made to tamp down the, uh, the uh, disinformation or misinformation or conspiracy theories, all of these attempts are so ham-fisted and so wrong-headed that – they're having the exact opposite effect that they should, um, that, that they're intended to have, which I think makes people, and it makes me uh, question what the intents are in, uh, to start out with. If you really wanted people to uh, be smarter consumers of media, or you wanted people to be better critical thinkers, uh, then you would provide the tools of critical thinking. You would provide the tools of um, uh, um, good media consumption. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not thinking of the word that I'm, that I'm looking for there. Um, you know, not everyone is a, a media critic. We are, we are consumers and the best that we can do is tell ourselves, okay, I'm going to go out into the media space and I am going to uh, see what's trending, see what's important to other people, but I'm also going to have my own agenda. And uh, instead of just sort of being a a fish swimming in a school of fish and just grabbing the information that's next to me, I'm going to go out with my own agenda and say, I want to know more about A, B, and C. And these things that I want to know more about, let's say it's the, uh, um, the budget resolution, it's uh, um, military spending, and it's COVID relief. And I want to go out and I'm going to go find the information that I can on that stuff. Teaching people how to consume media like that and to be good critical thinkers is exactly the opposite of you know, uh, uh, appointing a reality star who's going to up on high, from on high, point down to, you know, the, you, you, you little stupid people down there and say, hey, all of your beliefs are super stupid and you got to stop believing those stupid, stupid things because that's bad. And it's bad because I say it's bad. There is no better way to uh, create more people who believe in Jewish lasers from space or, uh, um, you know, the, uh, another good example is the uh, whole Clinton uh, murder and uh, adrenochrome situation or, or Pizzagate. There's no better way to harden those beliefs than to say those are verboten. That, that that is uh, transgressive to have those beliefs. The second you say that and you put that out there, people are going to push back and say, I want to know a lot more about that because that's exactly what you don't want me to know anything about. <sighs> you know, this isn't new stuff. There has been for a very long time uh, uh, attempts to control 
people's belief system. And there's been very little attempt to provide good critical thinking skills. Uh, it, it almost seems like, and I think people pick up on this, even if you didn't study logic and critical thinking in, in college the way I did, uh, people pick up on just naturally, because we're social animals, people pick up on what we're not supposed to do. And as soon as we think that there's something that we're not supposed to look at and we're not supposed to pay attention to it, we want to pay attention to it because it automatically has more more power. It automatically has more value, you know, because it's something that is, that is a, a, a bone of contention, you know. There's been um, a lot of talk about conspiracy theories. And, uh, you know, back during the Obama administration, Cass Sunstein uh, was uh, one of his advisors, and he wrote a lot on how what what he was going to do was infiltrate spaces where uh, people were exchanging information. And back then it would have been like forums like Daily Kos or, or uh, you know, forums that are uh, pertaining to subject matter like weather, I don't know, weather or um, UFOs or whatever it is, and infiltrate those spaces uh, to to sour, uh, to, to uh, disrupt discussion, and to try and, and push people out of those spaces or um, confuse the discourse within them uh, with a lot of other extraneous data. So this, this was his, his idea. He called it cognitive infiltration. Now, that was roundly <laughs> rejected when he put that out there. Uh, you know, it, it was, it, it, as soon as it was something that was talked about in the media, uh, that gave everyone the opportunity to say, wow, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And that seems really evil and really don't do that. And especially don't do that with tax money. And, and, you know, we don't want the government like trolling around and lurking in our, uh, um, subject matter forums. And, you know, we don't need hall monitors and stuff. What we have now, instead of hall monitors, is we have a uh, snitch uh, environment. We have snitch culture where you've, uh, you've got people that are engaging in, in social media and they look for people who are using language that is not the language of the ruling class. You know, this is uh, something that gets talked about in terms of political correctness. Uh, there's a, 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 a very intricate and um, complex uh, manner of, of speaking that is, is proper and politically correct, and it, and it changes, it's fluid, and people who don't keep up with that are, uh, are shamed and called out and uh, um, and uh, shunned, you know? And I'm starting to see this. This is something that I worked on all the way back in the 80s. You know, political correctness has been a thing for quite some time. It's been a bone of contention. And 
I think it's taken me this long to understand what is really going on here. And I'm starting to understand it in terms of there is a language of the ruling class and there is the language of the common people. And what we're actually doing with political correctness and uh, the policing of beliefs is we are imposing the uh, beliefs and the language of the ruling class on everyone else. That I think is, is what is most prominent in all of these um, uh, uh, arguments over culture. And, uh, and, you know, that's, that's good for me because this is what, this is what my entire education was about was uh, being able to um look at cultural production and discourse and be able to discern what is actually, what the power dynamics and what is actually going on behind the scenes. Never before in history and never back when I was in grad school, we had no idea <laughs> that, that, uh, that networked communication would become what it is today. We had ideas of what net, network communication, the internet would, would, would become back in 91, 92, 93. We had no idea it would, it would become what it is today and move as fast as it does and be as powerful as it is today. And I got to say, just the last thing, uh, reality czar is a fool's errand in this environment. You cannot put that toothpaste back in the tube. A ministry of truth is going to do nothing but infuriate 95% of the people. You know, the other 5% are going to be the ones who are employed by it. Uh, And we already see you. We already know that, uh, that correct the record and David Brock's armies of, of trolls have been at it since 2015. We know that Sally Albright's trolls have been at it since uh, 2016. Uh, we know how all of this works, and we recognize it when we see it. And when you see people on social media saying, gaslighting you and saying that uh, uh $2,000 was never what was on the table and that you can't do math, that is a propaganda operation. And I believe that there are very real people, you know, that think that they are doing absolutely the right thing, that they're, that they're little social media angels, you know, by picking up that messaging and, you know, throwing it around on social media. But they're the minority. The majority of the accounts that are doing that are affiliated with this other structure that is being developed that, that we talked about, the secret history to save the election or to save democracy. Uh, you know, we know that at least $20 million was uh, pumped into that, and that's what we know about. That's what they were willing to offer us in that story as a, as a number. And I guarantee you that there was plenty more where that came from. So we'll keep covering this as all of these um, issues continue to pop up 
unfortunately, they will keep popping up. And it's going to continue to be uh, a point of, uh, of contention. But, uh, but I'm, I'm ready to fight that. I'm absolutely ready to fight that fight. And I don't know anybody who, who isn't ready to fight that fight. And I'll tell you the other thing is that the people who aren't fighting that fight, what they're doing is they're disengaging. So you're creating armies of, of, of apathy, which is what we had back in the 80s. So I'm pretty familiar with that. Have fun with that when that happens. Okay. That's enough of that. We are coming right back with Janine Mollis and the Justice Report. All right. Welcome, Janine Moloff, with the Justice Report this week. What do you got? Thanks, Brooke. Well, this week, you know, we're, we're heading Super Bowl today. We're heading into... Trump's second impeachment next week. And, you know, the mainstream corporate press has been, you know, really gearing up for this impeachment trial and what the Republicans are planning to doing. And last week we talked about that, you know, insane woman, Marjorie Taylor Greene, with her space, Jewish space lasers and so on and so forth. But what's happening is, except for maybe the newspapers, the mainstream corporate news is largely ignoring what the GOP is doing at a state level in multiple states specifically to restrict and suppress the vote. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. So, you know, as the national press is talking about, you know, Trump's second impeachment ad nauseum, we'll, next week we'll see the results of the Super Bowl. You know, they'll talk about, you know, little, they'll play back some things, and then there'll be some inflate gate accusations against Tom Brady. But what we really need to look at, and that the mainstream press is granting short shrift to, are the workings. And these are very premeditated at various state levels, Republicans in multiple states. They're feverishly working to restrict voting rights, especially for those who will either never vote for the GOP of Trump or any communities of color, liberals, et cetera. So within this argument is another key issue, namely the desperate need to eliminate the modern filibuster, which which basically requires 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything. And you have to remember, too, the original filibuster, when people hear about the filibuster, they picture this uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment where, you know, Jimmy, uh, you know, where the actor gets up there and he makes this long speech with his last breath to try and, you know, get something done. But that's not what the filibuster is. The modern filibuster was tweaked illegitimately, I might add, so that they don't actually have to have these long speeches. When they say we're going to filibuster, what they mean is we're going to require a 60-vote supermajority in the Senate to pass anything so that a, a simple majority of 51 votes is nullified when they call a filibuster. And it's totally illegitimate. But the GOP is going to fight like crazy to keep the filibuster because, face it, that's the only way they can win by cheating. And one of the ways they cheat is decided to examine the many ways state-level Republicans are working to rob people like me of our right to vote. And my home state of Missouri is one of the worst offenders. We're going to get to that. So Common Dreams reported this as well as Ari Berman of Mother Jones. And Ari Berman, reporter of Mother Jones, 
was quoted as saying, quote, Democrats have a clear choice. They can get rid of the filibuster to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the For the People Act to stop GOP voter suppression, or they can allow the GOP to undermine democracy for the next decade, which is totally accurate. You know, we know that Trump, you know, he lost, but the GOP of Trump doesn't want to hear that. They keep screaming voter fraud, except for one thing. In what, 50-something cases, some of which went to Trump-appointed judges that are Trump loyalists, they said there's no evidence of voter fraud. But for many decades now, there has been quite a bit of evidence of massive premeditated voter suppression that has been created by the GOP. So as much fun as it is, once again, to blame everything on Trump, it isn't all Trump. So the GOP nationwide, like sneak thieves, are pushing to make voting more difficult at the state level, and especially for communities of color and any other Democratic uh, constituencies. And in some cases, some of these state legislators are working to empower themselves to overturn national election results. Arizona comes to mind. So, you know, once again, the GOP excuse being used to justify these illegitimate actions uh, which I call the voting rights Jim Crow 2.0 of alleged not is a, alleged non-existent voter fraud. So Ari Berman from Mother Jones, he's right. They are quote weaponizing Trump lies, you know, about voter fraud because they want to roll back voting rights. Okay, I know that when I went to vote in the presidential election, and I voted absentee because my state we don't have a mask mandate, nothing. Um, and I have COPD, so, but I still had to fit into a category. I had to provide an excuse as to why I was going to be voting absentee. And it had to be in by a certain date, or my vote wouldn't have counted. And the GOP that is in charge of the Missouri State Legislature thought they were being generous. So, you know, once again, the, one of the uh, studies that was cited both in Mother Jones and in Common Dreams and several others is a study by the Brennan Center for Justice. They conducted an analysis on this new, what I'll call refurbished Jim Crow 2.0 that's clearly sponsored by the GOP of Trump. And the analysis was conducted in late January. Already this year, Brennan Center reported the following. There have been 106 bills that were introduced in 28 states, including 17 under complete GOP control. And they were all created to undermine access to voting. Now, the Brennan Center went on to say these proposals basically fit into four categories of voter suppression and voter access. One, they want to limit mail voting access. Two, they want to impose stricter voter ID requirements. Three, they want to limit successful pro-voter registration policies. And four, they want to enable more aggressive voter roll purges. And we've seen these things before. Okay, Stacey, um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia really pushed and increased the amount of mail voting access, which during a pandemic like COVID was absolutely necessary. People shouldn't have to risk their lives in order to utilize their right to vote. So they want to end that. Um, stricter voter ID requirements. A lot of people, especially conservatives, white conservatives, don't understand what the big deal is. 
Well, if you're an older person, and let's say you originally came from another country, or for instance, um, you were born in another state, but you're very poor. A lot of these stronger voter ID requirements require that you get your birth certificate, and you're not allowed to just send for it in the mail. You have to physically go there. So if you're a resident, say, of Georgia, and let's say you were born in New York City, you would have to have the funds to travel to New York City in person to get your birth certificate so you can get the proper ID. And that represents a de facto poll tax. Um, we have a, a very prominent citizen here who, in Missouri and St. Louis who is a Holocaust survivor, and she couldn't vote in the last election because her birth certificate was destroyed, uh, compliments of the Nazis. Ironically, her granddaughter is a civil rights attorney. So these bills are based on the lie that there was voter fraud. So let's go through them all, okay? In the GOP-controlled Georgia Senate, CNN reported that the proposals included eliminating no-excuse absentee voting for many state residents and to end automatic voter registration when you go to get your driver's license. Uh, Ari Berman of Mother Jones also reported that state-level Georgia GOP introduced on February 1st nine bills, which would represent, quote, one of the worst voter suppression laws ever passed. In Arizona, the GOP didn't want to be outclassed by Georgia. They worked to disenfranchise certain voters. They introduced 34 bills to make voting harder, including, get this, they, they introduced bills to reduce the number of actual polling places in Maricopa County from 100 polling places to 15. But Georgia and Arizona aren't alone. This spike in anti-democracy bills is part of a trend. It's premeditated. And it's based not only in those who want to end any sort of liberal or progressive programs, but also based in racism. You can't avoid that. It's nothing new. The GOP embraced open racism and the disenfranchisement of minorities since the Southern strategy and before. Okay. So they're trying to undercut. And, you know, Ari Berman was quoted as saying that the GOP is, quite, quote, trying to accomplish through legislation what Trump couldn't do with litigation. All in all, these efforts amount to the most concerted attempts to roll back voting rights since the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, end quote. And Berman's totally correct, okay? Um, so one of the things that the Brennan Center's Wendy Weiser, Brennan Center for Justice, told CNN is that, quote, you have an absolutely necessary piece of legislation to restore our democracy. The filibuster shouldn't stand in the way of accomplishing it. And what she's talking about is a new Voting Rights Act. So the fact is this, without ending the modern filibuster, a strong and enforced Voting Rights Act will never be legislated, and the GOP knows it. So let's look at the Voting Laws Roundup 2021. And again, this is from the Brennan Center. GOP backlash to, to, this, to the historic voter turnout that pushed Trump out of office. Okay? And that voter turnout couldn't have happened without standing up to massive premeditated voter suppression practiced by the GOP for decades. Okay? 28 states have introduced, quote, pre-filed or carried, like I said, over 106 restrictive bills. Um, to date, 35 states have, uh, I'm sorry, it stands corrected. So the restrictive bills, let's move ahead. Uh, of the 28 states, the leader in new voter suppression legislation and the first, 
that gets the first prize in new voter suppression laws goes to Pennsylvania. They led the nation in proposed voter suppression legislation in 2021 with 14 restrictive policy proposals. Second prize in voters, new voter suppression bills goes to New Hampshire. They had, sec, they, they had 11 bills. And the third prize goes to my home state of Missouri with nine bills. And keep in mind, Missouri also has the distinction of being the, 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 state, the uh, slowest state in the U.S. for COVID vaccine rollout. Uh, Missouri has Republican Governor Parsons, who's a Trump acolyte and re who also refuses to enact a mask mandate. So the fact that there's massive voter suppression here is no, no shock here. Also, the Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, was key in the and let, helped lead the illegitimate Attorney General lawsuit challenging the presidential election results. And then, of course, our Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft. If that name sounds familiar, it should. He's John Ashcroft's son. You know, the attorney general that will help preside over torture. So in the fourth place goes Mississippi, New Jersey, and Texas. All these states are working incredibly hard to restrict voter access. So the restrictions on mail voting, these are here are some details. About a, a little over a third of these bills um, seek to limit mail-in voting. Um, these GOP legislators are attacking mail-in voting every way they can. They're making their, uh, their proposals to basically dictate and reduce who can vote by mail. They want to make it harder to obtain those mail-in ballots. And then they want to put hurdles to complete and cast mail-in ballots. I can tell you right now, in my home state of Missouri, when I had to get my absentee ballot, I had to, first of all, you couldn't do it on the website. All right, they, 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 it was so limited. I had to um, find a way to produce ID and produce a signature, but it was done by the computer or show up in person, which kind of takes away the whole idea of the protection you get from mail-ins to, you know, to expose yourself to COVID. Um, finally, what I had to do and argue with my local voter board, I wrote myself a note. I signed it, I dated it, requesting my absentee ballot, and I, I attached a picture of my photo ID, both front and back, and sent that via email. But it took several attempts, and it shouldn't have been that difficult. Um, so then they want to limit who can vote by mail. There's five bills in three states, which would make the excuse requirement like I have because I have COPD in terms of exposing myself to COVID. They want to make it more stringent for absentee validity voting or just eliminate the no excuse mail-in voting. The Missouri bill would eliminate COVID-19 concerns as an excuse. That's Missouri's uh, Senate Bill 282. The Missouri GOP once again showing its cruelty while thumping those Bibles and cleaning their guns. They want to make it harder, the GOP, to obtain ballots. Arizona through HB 2370 in Pennsylvania, they put, they're pushing bills that would eliminate the permanent early voter list. Two bills in Arizona and one in New Jersey would make it easier for uh, state officials to remove voters from the permanent absentee list. Okay, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Texas, and Washington are looking at bills to limit who can send absentee ballots um, applications to voters without an affirmative request. Um, a New York bill, a New York Senate Bill 1805, 
It would restrict who could submit absentee ballot applications on another voter's behalf. There's restrictions on assistance to voters, um, witness signatures, four states introduced legislation to make it harder to satisfy those witness requirements. Uh, Arizona's bill would require all mail-in ballots to be notarized. South Carolina would require, re require a witness to include a driver's license and state voter registration number. Uh, and it just goes on and on and on, okay? More burdensome, burdensome signature matching requirements, um, increased poll watcher access, ballot receipt and postmark deadlines. Um, so three states introduced bills. It would require mail ballots to be received earlier in order to be count, actually counted. Kansas bill would eliminate the Secretary of State's discretion to decide to count ballots received later than three days after election day. Um, there's stricter voter ID requirements. Um, there's limited voter registration access. More aggressive voter purge practices. A lot of people don't understand what that is. Greg Palace talks about and was written about extensively. Actually, it happened to me a couple of years ago. I missed a local election. I vote in practically every election, but I missed one, maybe two. And I get a card from St. Louis County, the Board of Election Commissioners, and they want me to basically, it looks very nondescript, and want me to just basically state that I still live at my present address, yada, yada, yada. And most people would ignore it. It's like, of course I live here. Why, why do I need to send that to you? You knew, knew to send it to me. <clears throat> you ignore that type of, of notification at your own jeopardy because you don't bring it in and you don't send it in by a certain deadline, then the state of Missouri will purge your name from the active voter list. So it does happen. It nearly happened to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the Republicans know what they're doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they claim this is to correct a problem. No, it isn't. It, it's the Republicans that have a voting problem because they know their policies favor the rich at everyone else's expense, and they couldn't get elected unless they have tools of tools to implement massive voter suppression, and then tools to make sure no no effective legislation gets passed, such as the illegitimate filibuster. You show me where in the Constitution it says that a simple majority is not enough to pass a piece of legislation. It's nonsense, okay? It's just another hurdle. And even Donald Trump, as, as, as ignorant as that man is, was quoted at Fox and Friends and, you know, basically saying that, you know, absentee ballots and vote by mail would cause, quote, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again, end quote. And we know that. That's a given. So here's the thing in conclusion. This flurry of bills that would restrict voter access is targeted strictly at non-Republican voters, and it's targeted at communities of color. There's no guesswork here, all right? The Republicans cannot win unless they cheat. Put simply, again, my own home state of Missouri makes it so difficult 
to vote absentee, it is beyond the pale. I mean, what I had to go through to get my absentee ballot, even though I'm medically, a medically vulnerable person in the middle of an uncontrolled pandemic, was ridiculous. I had to argue on the phone and through email. And I mean, it turned into a shouting match because the Board of Election Commissioners in St. Louis County, they would not acknowledge my email request. When you go on to the Sec Missouri Secretary of State um, website, to try and, and vote, to try and first of all request your absentee ballot. The requirements they have, such as a signature requirement, an ID, and so on, they there is no robo signing. There is no way to accommodate that. There is no instruction where to set. You you actually have to physically go someplace in order to present this, which kind of defies the idea of the protection you would get from, uh, you know, absentee voting during a pandemic. And I created my own request form, you know, on a piece of notebook paper, and I printed it so it was easy to read. I dated it. I put the date, the time, the reason for the request. I used, and then I quoted their own language. Then I took a picture front and back of my own ID and signed it. And then I took a picture of the whole thing and sent it via email. And it took four attempts before it was accepted. And I almost missed the deadline. And I suspect the only reason they didn't actually deny me was because I told them, I'm going to lawyer up and I'm going to sue. But this is what it is. And all this goes back to the fact that the Republicans, the GOP, for quite a long period of time now, uses a couple of tools and it's the only way they can win. One, massive voter suppression, okay? Suppression of communities of color, voter suppression of progressives and so on and so forth. And that's what we talked about here today. The other one is pushing basically whether it's thinly veiled or not, racism. This is the extension of the old Jim Crow laws and it goes back to the Southern strategy and this voter suppression is the logical extension of the old Southern strategy. All right. Uh, Republican strategist lately Atwater discussed it in a 1981 interview published in Southern politics in the 1990s. Um, and Atwater explained that, you know, this was, you just have, all you have to do to keep the South for Reagan is to run in place on the issues he's campaigned on since 64. And that's fiscal conservatism. Uh, balancing the budget cut taxes, you know, the whole cluster. And, and again, when you talk about fiscal conservatism, what you're talking about is refusing to pay workers a living wage. That's what it translates into and allowing corporations carte blanche to do whatever they want, which is going to run afoul of the union. So how did the Republicans get these white union members? Well, they did that with Atwater's dirty trick. To quote Atwater, y'all don't quote me on this. You start out in 1954 by saying... I hate that word. By 1968, you can't say hurts you, backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. You're getting so abstract now that you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And a byproduct of them is that blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that's part of it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, 
that we are doing away with the racial problem one way or another. You follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying we want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract. Than but that's exactly how Ronald Reagan got away with it. To date, there's still a lot of people that truly believe that Ronald Reagan from Hollywood was not racist. In truth, he was. More importantly, he pushed policies that hurt communities of color. These were racist policies, and he campaigned on this same nonsense. And that's what this is about. The Republicans know they can't win unless, one, they do massive voter suppression of certain targeted communities that will that have the common sense to know the GOP is all about favoring the rich and screwing over the rest of us, as we see in this pandemic as well, and two, by pushing this not so thinly veiled racism that now extends not only to the black community, but to uh, migrants of color as well. And that, and these state legislators, they, they need to be scrutinized. Okay. This, this is, this is almost more important than the Trump impeachment because this is going to dictate who gets elected next. This controls uh, presidential electors, all sorts of things. We, all politics is local, and we need to put, we need to turn up the heat on these GOPers at the state level and make them obey the law because what they're doing now is not legitimate. So that's pretty much it for this week. That's my report. All right, Janine, thank you so much with the Justice Report. We very much appreciate that. Every Thursday, catch uh, Janine Maloff's The Environmental Justice Report, Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. And uh, look for that at your podcatcher. And you know what? That does it for us tonight. Thanks for listening. I love you guys. And, uh, hey, we're going to have another whole week of this. We'll see you again on Sunday.